0: i This is exciting. High Performance is back. Hi, everyone. Welcome along to the first episode of the third series of the High Performance Podcast. Listen, if you're new, the way it works is that every Monday we drop a new episode with a new amazing guest and myself and my co-host, Professor Damien Hughes, will just aim to inspire you, to uplift you, to equip you with all you need to take on your own life by having a really honest conversation with the person who joins us. If you're totally new to the podcast, let me just recommend that you go right back to the beginning the first episode of the first series when we spoke to Rio Ferdinand you can subscribe for free of course wherever you get your podcasts you can follow myself Damien or the podcast over Instagram or find our YouTube channel but this week we're kicking off series three in style with a conversation with a man you've heard a lot from but you've not heard this kind of stuff.
1: How did you feel watching Liverpool win it this year was there a part of you that was envious jealous
2: no not one one bit honestly not one bit i knew what that meant that premiership to an awful lot of people
0: we can't wait for you to hear this week's episode let's get to it this week's high performance podcast
3: selling a little or a lot Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite.
0: Hi there, I'm Jay Comfrey and you're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their high-performance life and you can't do a job like this on your own. Professor Damien Hughes is alongside me. And look, Damien, some people love football because of the game. It's about the winning and it's about the losing. Others love it for the competitiveness, the heart, the passion, the will. And I think today's guest epitomizes all of those things.
1: Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to uh, interviewing our guest today, not only to find out about being an elite performer themselves, but how they've made that transition to help others uh, perform at their best as well.
0: Okay, well, today we are joined by a leader. He currently leads Glasgow Rangers Football Club, looking to win their first league title in almost a decade. He was a leader as a player, the only player to score in an FA Cup final, League Cup final, UEFA Cup final and Champions League final, winning every single one. But how did he become a leader? And then after that, how did he become a winner? How did the experiences that he had on the pitch equip him to lead from the sidelines? And what lessons in leadership can you learn from today's high-performance guest to improve your own life? Welcome to the podcast, Stephen Gerrard. Thank you. Nice to have you with us. So what is high
2: performance? Yeah, to me, it's a, a level. And if you think about a scale, um, it's obviously finding that level that's close to the top, if not at the top. And then it's about finding that consistency to try and maintain that over a period of time. You were, you were known as cu- quite a quiet kid that loved his football when you first
0: came on the scene. When did you become a, an actual leader or someone who had decided that he was going to operate, as you just described, at the absolute top and lead other people?
2: I I think to to outsiders, I was probably known as someone who was quiet, but in my own little circles and bubbles, I was maybe a a cheeky type of person. Um, I think if you speak to people that are close to me, I don't think they'd describe me as a quiet kid. They'd probably describe me as someone who was obsessed with a ball, obsessed with competing, whether it be in, in the house with my brother, whether it be with a close family in the garden, whether it be on a field, local, on my council estate where I grew up. They would say, and I've heard them say that I'd do anything to come out on top, anything to make sure that I was the winner. And it was a everyday thing. It was never a, a phase. It was always the ball before school, the ball before visiting nans, the ball before food. It was always the ball.
1: What was it that gave you that drive to want to be competitive and want to be the best and have to come out on top, Stephen?
2: I think it's probably a combination of things. I think the area where uh, I grew up certainly uh, helped me me to prepare. There's lots and lots of kids on the council estate who want to play football every single day. Uh, Tough kids who who are game for the competitive side of the game. I've got an older brother who's two and a half years older who was very competitive as well and um, pushed me around a bit, let's say. My dad, very sporty football family. So I think that upbringing uh, helped me get to the top for sure, 100%.
1: And can I ask you around the role of Steve Highway? He always fascinates me in your story that he sort of had come from that Shankly school and understood the Liverpool way in many ways. Um, How significant was he then in taking on from the role of your father?
2: Yeah, I think at a young age, I remember being in the car. Um, We didn't always have a car. We had times when we'd have a car and then maybe we couldn't afford a car. So it was like maybe public transport to and from. It was called the Centre of Excellence back then, which would be known nowadays as an academy. Uh, And I remember my dad saying to me, the staff had pulled him in and said, we want to keep this kid here for, for a long time. So they obviously seen something... At a younger age, I remember talking to you about
0: early on in training, either one of your coaches or your manager at the time saying, Stephen, you don't have to break everyone in half with every tackle. I remember you explained to me once that you were obsessed about getting into the Liverpool first team. And the final thing that sticks in my memory from conversations we've had is when we, you talk about you were going to take someone's place in the first team and you were not going to let them get that place back.
2: Yeah, I, I certainly had an obsession to get to Liverpool's first team. I think that got stronger and stronger as I was getting older and going through the years. I think in terms of the yellow cards, it was always going to be the case the way I played because I like to play on the edge. I always found my best performances were when I went on autopilot and I committed everything and I let it go. And that's probably a small range of where you need to get to to be at your absolute best. So all these experiences eventually lead you to having an amazing career as a, as a Liverpool player. You
0: then had a period in America, some time on the television. You've talked about just sort of catching your breath a bit, which I think totally acceptable after the life that you lived in this in this city and then you stepped straight back in to remarkably somewhere almost as kind of intense as Liverpool as a footballing city which is in Glasgow was there not a part of you that thought actually Glasgow's um, a bit like a goldfish bowl a bit like Liverpool is or is that what you need in your football do you need that absolute intensity
2: I think it's a massive buzz to me I found it hard to give up being a player at Liverpool uh, I was on the back of a real brutal, cruel low in my life uh, in 2014, the, the Chelsea episode, which still lives with me till today. So I think in terms of the decisions I made from there going to America to come out of the city, just to breathe, relax and freshen up and decide what, what I thought was the next chapter for me. You know, Was it TV? Was it coaching? What age did I want to coach at? But it struck me pretty quickly that i missed the competitive side and the daily routine of competing and that buzz of the highs that i've had during the player i want to experience them highs again because for me the, the highs well outweigh the lows even though i've had one or two crushing lows yeah why can't you let those go i don't know i don't know i think i've um worked really hard to accept them situations but I still think now part of me is chasing more highs because I think what I've give to the sport from seven or eight years of age, I think I deserve more highs. I still think more about the lows. I don't know why.
1: Really? So that moment that you referenced in in 2014, Mm. are you not able to put some perspective on
2: it? I do that every day and I do that and I park it up, but it, it comes back all the time.
1: And what triggers it then?
2: just me reflecting i i am someone who thinks a lot i always try and tap into experiences
1: but do you not replace it with say the image of istanbul all and the time. to come back then and- yeah
2: all the time and you know this is not a thing that happens every single day but it was such a big moment uh, i've had lots and lots of moments some incredible moments which i never dreamed of but a career takes you to some lows as well. And it'd be easy if you just lifted the carpet, pushed them under, and you never thought about them ever again. But I don't think that's ever going to be the case.
1: Sure. But I remember hearing Bill Bezick, the sports psychologist, once say it was advice to Roy Keane about football's about managing the lows because there's far more of them than there are going to be highs. And surely as a manager, you're, you've I, signed up to I, that. I, at course.
2: the moment, I'm trying to use it as a positive in terms of like, I think the reason why I've wanted to take the challenge up of being a manager, I mean... I don't see myself as a manager yet. I see myself as someone who's trying to grow and become a, a top manager. Um, and that's going to take a long time. I think a lot of coaches they have who don't have the football career, for example, I had, they have 15, 20 years to prepare themselves. For example, a Mourinho, a, a Brendan Rodgers, who maybe haven't had the football career. The reason they're so good at what they do and they're so slick because they've had twenty years experience. I haven't I won't have that luxury because I played. And um, so for me it's gonna be a different type of journey.
1: Given your reputation and your name, could you not have given yourself five years to go and accelerate that learning process and for you'd sure, still I get had, a job I on had the that back?
2: Decision. For sure Rangers come too soon because I'm two years into learning to be a coach. Uh, I haven't really got a time frame on it when I'm gonna jump in or Blah, blah, blah. Or if anyone's going to come and all of a sudden one day the Rangers opportunity comes and you get a feeling in your stomach and it takes you back to feelings you get as a player and you think, I fancy a bit of this. This is a bit of me. And you, you talk now about the Rangers opportunity coming early for you for a
0: couple of years there. How much did you not know about management when you took that job despite the fact you'd spent your entire career under under managers?
2: I watch managers very closely. Uh, how they done their roles. Um, I always used to think what what are they doing in their office? What do they do from the moment I leave Melwood? What do they do for the rest of the day? I wonder what I, I it was always fascinated me. The, from what age? Probably coming towards my thirties. Right. Um I had no interest in coaching throughout my twenties or becoming a manager really. I was just really in the zone of being a player, really. Um, but it always fascinated me towards the, the later years, if you like, or coming into the 30s. You know, what's it like? What's their buzz? What do they do on a daily basis? What else does their job entail? And I thought I knew a lot of it because I watched them quite closely. But when you step into becoming a manager yourself, there's a lot more to it than you actually think. Can you remember that biggest sort of learning curve early on at Rangers when you thought, wow, okay? Yeah, I, I don't think it was a, it was a learning curve, but I remember addressing the team the squad for the, for the first, first time yeah and um I had a few days and weeks to prepare for what I was going to say but for me the key thing was to to let them know that I'm not standing here addressing you to Steven Gerrard the player I'm not gonna think I'm this person because I've had a, a decent football career this is me here to try and help and support you to try and improve you as a group, to try and use my experiences and my knowledge and my team of people who I've worked ever so hard to get around me. And we as a group are going to try and help you. We're there for use uh, and we'll do everything we can. We'll sacrifice everything we can for you individually and collectively to get you in a better place because at the time Rangers were suffering.
0: So what did you want from those players? What was the culture that you wanted them
2: to find at that football club under you? We wanted to create uh, a culture where it was a no-excuse culture. So, yes, we'll make the training ground better. We'll make Ibrox better. We'll get you a better kit. We'll get you better food. We'll get you better... We'll take all the excuses away. But then you have to buy into having that responsibility and that accountability. I'll do everything I can to protect you, and I'll take as much responsibility... I want you to just go and play with freedom, express yourselves and give me the best version of you. And if we got that collectively around the group or got the majority buying into that, there was no doubt Rangers were going to improve. We also knew that over a period of time with what had been said to me in the chat with the board and the yeah. chairman that we were going to add players to it and we were going to recruit better players to help them. I think that was music to their ears as well, that we have got the support of the board to get people in who are going to help us get better. And talking
0: to them as a group is one thing, but getting to what you can call the heart of the player rather than the head of the player is something totally different. To work with individuals to really understand them.
2: Yeah, I think you've got that takes time. I don't think that happens on day one. I think I had to get used to the players, get to know them individually. I knew them from the outside, and you can't know a person by watching them on the TV or playing against them previously. I think it takes time to build a relationship, to build a trust. And what are your processes for building that? Time, one-on-one chats, getting to know people, letting them know what type of person I am away from, Steven Gerrard the footballer, you know, family man, Yeah, family first. Right, so getting to know them, but also letting them really get to, get know, to know you. Get to know me. Right. And showing that I'm there for them. You know, I'm not in this role just for me. Of course, I want to do well. I want to be a good manager. I want to be a successful Rangers manager. But now it's about not just me and you, it's about us. What are we going to give us to make this better and take it forward? But that takes time.
1: Can I ask you then, Steven? that I remember speaking to um, Ferenc Soriano, the city chief exec that had been responsible for when Guardiola took over at Barcelona. Mm. And one of the criteria that he said he he used when he looked at him was, they looked at it through three lenses. One was credibility, so did he have knowledge? One was around uh, the kind of energy and enthusiasm for the job. But then the third one was the role of integrity that he had to match. So if you're asking players to do a certain thing, you couldn't be seen to be a hypocrite. You had to be role-modeling. The behaviours that you're asking everyone else to buy into. Yeah. So, what are those behaviours that you're asking people to buy into? I
2: I think early on, as you talk about the culture, uh, I think you have obviously you have standards on the training pitch. You have standards that you'd expect in a game, but it's also a daily thing what you're asking the players. You know how they behave, what standards you expect of them, the standards you believe in, your non-negotiables and stuff. And so, what are they? Basically, who we representing, we're representing Rangers who are built on winning and standards and history and tradition and a lot of legends, managers, players have gone before us. We have a responsibility to carry on that tradition and them standards. Um, I, I want people to come to work. It has to be enjoyable. It has to be. But there needs to be a, a realisation from the players to know when, when do we enjoy this and when do we work? And I think... Once that balance, once the players understand that balance of, yes, I want you to skip into work, you've got to have energy, you've got to enjoy it, you've got to bring something. Um, But when the whistle goes and we work, we all have to commit and give everything we've got. And that's that's how we go about it in terms of our culture. And how do you deal with players that don't do that? I deal with every player the same, Jake. I try and show them respect and, and, and honesty. That's the way I've been brought up, even outside of football. Try and be respectful, try and be honest. You know, I think you've got to realise you're not going to get everything right. You're not going to get every signing right. Uh, Not every player that you take over is going to be perfect for you or fit into how you play or what you want. That doesn't mean they're a bad player or a bad person. So I think if you have real honest and respectful communication with everyone, sometimes you have to tell them stuff they don't want to know. But I think eventually they'll realize that you've done it. I wonder whether that player. was
0: informed by your time as a player, that you had managers who were totally open with you and were warm with you and brought you in. And then you had managers who were much colder and you weren't really sure where you stood with them. And you found that difficult, perhaps?
2: Yeah, I, I've never really tried to copy a manager to a mm. team. I've tried to take different things from, from all of them. But I liked it and I preferred it when a manager looked me in the eye and was honest, sort of, I was good. I wanted the manager to tell me I was good. If I needed to do stuff better and improve, I wanted the manager to look at me in the angle. I think you can do better, I think you can do more. Sometimes that puts a lump in your throat when you hear something that you maybe don't want to hear. Yeah. But in your own time, if if you're a proper athlete performer or a proper player, I think you need to respect that.
3: Introducing Wondersweep from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard.
0: Hey, look, as you know, in high performance, we love to highlight businesses doing things a better way. That's why we're proud to partner today with Mint Mobile. And when I found Mint Mobile, I had to share it with you. They've ditched retail stores and all the overhead costs and passed those savings onto you. Right now, Mint Mobile has wireless plans starting at $15 a month. That's unlimited talk and text plus data for $15 a month. And for me, those numbers are fantastic. I've been paying way more than that for my whole life. So if you hate your phone bill, Mint Mobile can offer you premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. All the plans come with unlimited talk and text and high speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can choose from three, six or 12 month plans. Say goodbye to your monthly phone bills. So to get your wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com HPP. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash HPP. Additional taxes, fees and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Today's episode of High Performance is in partnership with MindLift. And many of you may have heard already that in 2023, I decided to give MindLift a go, the neuroscience based personalised brain trainer to improve your focus and your relaxation. So I popped on the headband, I downloaded the MindLift app and connected to my own Personal neuro coach, and look, because of my job as a podcaster, I get to experience so many different things that people tell me are going to benefit my life. And in all honesty, once I started using Mindlift, I just found that I felt sharper, my focus was better, and I think something else that you can't necessarily feel is that it offers an improvement for overall brain health. I also was really reassured by the fact that this is trusted by clinicians around the world. I know for a fact it's used by top athletes. I've spoken to some of them about how much they love it. And the fact that the whole experience is customised by your own neuro coach, I think just makes it really smart. So if you want to get involved and you're interested, now is the time with a $40 discount exclusively for you. And if you want to get $40 off your first subscription, just go to mindlift.com slash highperformance. That's M-Y-N-D-L-I-F-T dot com slash highperformance.
1: What was the one bit of feedback that you received off a coach that maybe was difficult, that you feel had the biggest difference on your performance? Uh,
2: Rafa Benitez was probably the the one that, took my game to the next level. I thought I was a really, really good player (laughs) when Rafa come in, but I probably wasn't. Um, And he noticed pretty early that I needed to improve positionally. Um, Discipline, sort of when to run forward, how many times are you running forward, what are you leaving behind when you run forward. Sometimes you don't have to run forward, sometimes the job didn't. And it was that game understanding of... You know your role in the team. I was someone who was full on, you know, full of energy. going to do as much as I can. How many times I'm going to make the box? How many crosses I want to get in? How many shots? And he got me to become more of a team player, more game aware, understand the tactical side of it. Who we playing against?
1: And why did you find that difficult to hear?
2: Because I I thought I was all right. I thought I was fine. You know, I was 23, I think, at the time. I was scoring goals. I was playing well. The, fa- the fans like me, but football's about levels and he's trying to get me to become one of the best midfielders in Europe. He's wanting me to, not just for me to be maybe a good player domestically, he wants to make me a, a top-class player. And I think a top-class player has different things to the game. It's not just about your talent uh, and, and your strengths, it's about an understanding of the game, how the game works, uh, phases within the game. tactical side of it you know like what are the opposition going to do and who you're up against and that's the reason why it's such a fascinating game but he is the most fascinating and the most tactically aware manager that I ever played
1: So how would you deal with a a player then that was either in that comfort zone of I'm happy just being a good player and you're trying to take me to another level and I'm quite and I don't want to go or somebody that is deluded that at the level that they think they're at How would you handle that now as a coach? I think as
2: a player, you've got that option. You either take advice on board and you're open. You're open to improve little small areas to try and go. I I think as a footballer, you can never stop learning and growing. But as a coach, how would you handle that footballer that didn't want to make that? I I, I talk to them and it's a choice. I'd never force a player to, to change his game. I'd never force a player to do anything. I'd chat to him. You know, you're open, this is what we see. Um, I'd maybe back up what I'm trying to do with what I'd seen. If a player's performing really well and strong and I think he's fine, I'll leave him be, I'll let him crack on. I think you'd only try and improve a player if you see things or there's evidence where you think he can do things slightly different, which will elevate his game. But we we get massive buy-in from every player at any age to improve because I believe I've got a fantastic staff and I've got an environment, which is a learning environment. And we don't care whether you're 18 or 38. We're still having chats with Jermaine Defoe. Little certain things, Jermaine Defoe is an unbelievable player, unbelievable athlete. But Jermaine Defoe wants to make the most of us, what's yeah. left. And he's open for dialogue and chat and blah, blah. blah. You, you get that buy and if you've got the right... Environment.
1: So do you think you could have gone and coached at a lower level then? Or do you think you almost needed to go into a level where you had that kind of elite mentality?
2: Yeah, I think so. Um, Look, uh, there there might be times, Jordan, this journey moving forward where it might take me where I have to do that. But if you ask me what my preference would be, it'd be to work at the top and stay as high and be around the best players I can possibly be around. That's not being disrespectful to levels of the game. N- not at all. I watch all levels of the game. Uh, I watched the game the other night. get v Bradford, full game. Watched the game. It was the only game that was on the telly. But I watched it. I-, I don't disrespect levels of the game, but for me, my buzz and my ambition is to stay as high as I can. Do you think it's
0: harder for players or easier for players under you that you had such a good career?
2: Um, I think different players probably handled it initially differently. Yeah. I think some people were in a shell, a little bit maybe intimidated That in in the early days, early weeks. Uh, I think they were hanging on to every word and also really open to see what I was going to be like. I think they were fascinated, what's he going to be like? He's new. He hasn't been anywhere before. I think the first two, three weeks of me going in at Rangers were probably the most important two, three weeks. After all you've achieved, were you still nervous at that point? Very. Extremely. I think addressing the Rangers squad for the first time, probably one of the most nervous talks I've ever done.
1: And I've heard it said that managers have often said that, that players will test you at some stage. You want to know where the line is or what the standards are. So what was the first maybe test? Maybe you might be able like to get you? away
2: with it once or maybe a certain individual, you might be able to bend the truth or try and think. Of. But I think as a group of footballers, yeah, certainly when you've got experienced players in the room, they'll work you out pretty fast. I, I think I think you your your tactics for your first game, I think they're really wanting to know what your style is gonna be. Right. Um, you know, are you gonna be a defensive coach, are you gonna be an attacking coach? You know, how's he gonna set us up? What formations are you gonna use? I think the players are really waiting for you to maybe I don't know whether it fails the right word or to get something wrong, or you do feel like certainly in the first few months, everything's a test and All eyes, it's like their their eyes are burning you, waiting for you to get something wrong. So it was a very important stage the first few months to sort of get their trust.
0: And how connected does your management career feel to your playing career? Do you think that you basically, without knowing it at the time you spent your playing career,
2: learning things that you're now putting into practice every day? Yeah, for sure. I think the career I've had definitely shaped me. Um, A lot of the standards that I've lived by, I've worked under um, a lot of the non-negotiables that managers have gave me, I've tried to bring in. You know, we, we have a leadership group. I, I like the dressing room to run itself. There's a lot of things, yeah. I'd say the majority of the things I've learned through my playing career, I try and use in, in the way I manage.
1: So can I ask you about the leadership group then? Because your role as a player here at Liverpool always intrigues me that you were seen as, like, we often use the phrase on this podcast around being a cultural architect So a leader without necessarily having the title of it, that you defend the standards, you call people out when they're not doing it. Mm. And you weren't worried about necessarily being popular. It was about doing the right thing rather than... Yeah,
2: I wasn't someone who called people out in front of groups. I'd never try and belittle anyone or disrespect anyone. Um, I think it's important that people don't think I was this type of leader who'd make people feel crap. I was someone who'd speak to people more in 1v1 situations um, or I'd address the group and say this is what I believe in this is what I think's right this is what we, you know and, and I'd have a, a, a strong opinion but I was never the type of leader who would be forceful or try and intimidate or well, do that style
1: but I've heard it said about you though Stephen that, that some players were very aware where they stood in your uh, in, uh, in your level of respect? So there's some players that said they were very aware that you didn't approve of them or you didn't rate them.
2: I don't think that's important, whether I rate them or not. Um, I think the important thing when you're in, that, in the industry and in the dressing room is who's going to help you win football matches, who's going to help you be successful. I can't control whether a player thinks I rate them or whether I accept them. I don't really think that's important. What were you
0: like though? Because now you're a manager, it's okay for to be clear about your opinion. What were you like as a player with players that you didn't think were doing their all for the cause like
2: you were? Well, it depends. I think if they were trying and giving yeah. everything they've got. Uh, if they weren't though? If they weren't, I, I think your job as the captain of Liverpool, if someone's not pulling the weight or is letting the team down or letting the club down, I think it's my job to let them know. But as I say, I had a style and a way of doing that. Mm. You know, a dressing room's an environment where everyone's entitled to say what they want. The Liverpool dressing room was always that way. People always think that me and Jamie Carragher, were these kings of the castle, and it was just about us two. It certainly weren't. We had a lot of experienced players in that dressing room, and I think we were all on the same page in terms of what we expected from all the individuals in the room and who we were representing. If there was someone in there who weren't pulling the weight or letting everyone else down, it wasn't just me. Um, I think the the coaching staff with the likes of Sammy Lee and Phil Thompson and the managers we played under, they'd be identified pretty quickly and they wouldn't be around for very long. And that's just the way it is. That process
1: of learning not to be selfish and then start to look at the wider group and the impact of it is a journey that you obviously went on. That Like when Jake was asking you around, as a kid you were focused on, I'm getting my place in that team and I'm not going to surrender it. Mm. And that was very much around your own drives and your mm. own ambitions. When did that process of learning to sacrifice yourself for the wider group take place for you in your career? And how do you then teach your I think players
2: I think it was initially when I was given more responsibility by my coach or my coaches, maybe being given the armband. For example, I was given the captaincy at 23. I remember having conversations with Gerard Hulley and Phil Thompson and there's the, the early conversations are getting given the captaincy. Now you're going to have to start thinking about other people. Because I think becoming a footballer at a professional level, it is a lot of it is about you and getting yourself right, doing the right things on and off the pitch to make sure your performance is good. Yeah, you're part of a team, but your job is to make sure that you contribute and bring your strengths to that team. I think as I came towards 23-24 and I become Liverpool captain, I probably had to carry on doing that but also adapt into someone who is there for other people, support other people. And that took time. That took time. That didn't happen overnight. I didn't all of a sudden become this person who everyone could bounce off. I I had to become a better leader, a better person, uh, whilst maintaining my own high standards.
1: What sort of help or advice or support did you get to be able to make that mental transition?
2: I couldn't have done it without Jamie Carragher or Sammy Ippier. I replaced Sammy. I think his reaction was first class. Jamie was a natural leader as well. Um, different type of leader for me, maybe a bit more vocal. Um, he had his own, obviously, traits of his own leadership. But having the support and the backing of them, even though they were older and more experienced than me, yep. certainly helped me blossom into a better leader.
1: So how would you help a player now, at Rangers... Make that transition from being selfish to seeing the bigger picture.
2: I think I I have. Um, we named a, a new captain. I'd obviously seen stuff from the outside at Rangers, um, but we we named a new captain in James Tavernier, and we knew he was a fantastic player, and uh, he was quite consistent, and he had respect from the other players in terms of a player. Um, myself and Gary and the other coaching staffs have tried to help James become a, a leader in, in other areas as well and try and give him that support and help him blossom as a leader as well from our own experiences, you know. But I think that's not just me, that's Gary as well and, and other people at the club.
0: How careful do you have to be not to constantly refer back to your experiences as a player with your players now? Or do you think it's a really helpful thing?
2: Um I, I definitely tap into my own experiences, but it's not so much Along the lines of, oh, I remember I scored this goal, or I made this run, or I remember this game when I did this or that. It was more. It's more like um, I remember maybe getting something wrong, or mem- remember doing the wrong decision, or I remember being a bit selfish at this time, or blah blah blah. And I'll tap into stuff where maybe I don't think there's any harm in that. No, tapping into that.
0: I think in some ways it's probably helpful for those players because when you recall someone's career, you think of all the good stuff, right? But you can talk to them about how sort of torn you were that summer where there was the Chelsea situation on the table and you may Mm. have left Liverpool or, you know, losing big games and big moments or seeing great players like Torres leave Liverpool and wondering what that meant for your own future. I think all of those negative moments.
2: Yeah, I think my career has took me on a journey of highs and lows over a big period of time. And I think that's prepared me and it's the reason why I feel I can be a manager. And that's where I think I can support players. Because I do believe I've, I've not, not been there and got the T-shirt type, but I've definitely experienced the majority of what you can experience as a player on and off the pitch. And I think even in
0: those moments, you were, without, without knowing it, kind of managing other players. Of all of the things that happened in your career, shall I tell you the thing that I think about when I think about you as a leader? It isn't lifting the trophies, it, it isn't sort of the big lows or the big highs. It is when John Arisa misses his penalty, in the Champions League final, and as he walks back to the group, you're the first one to break away from the line of players and put your arm around him straight away and comfort him. And you are on the verge of missing out on your
2: greatest moment as a player because of what he's just done. Thankfully, because yeah, I think, I think as well as I think you've got to be a good person as well. I think mm. you know football's emotions and different things happen it's not just all the good things that you see on the TV Uh, people have feelings and you get to know people you build relationships and you know how much they want it as much as you there's been many occasions where I've done stuff that's not really to do with football or on the pitch that have made me feel just as proud as going up and lifting a trophy like for example when tournaments with England haven't gone well and you know that the whole group are about to be battered from pillar to post and you've had to step forward and do a press conference and take a lot of the responsibility and the blame. And there's, there's a lot of things that uh, come with leadership and it's not just the walking up to lift trophies and getting the credit and getting a nine out of 10. In. Were they conscious
0: decisions though? Or when, in that John recent moment, did you actually consciously think, right, he's going to be really upset with that. I'm going to go speak to him. Was it almost wanna just be innate
2: I want to be there for him. I want to show him that, um, I'm not just on his back when he puts it in the top corner from 40 yards. I'm there for him when he's at his, his lowest moments as well. And I think that's when you get respected as a leader, when you are there for your teammates in the good and the bad times and the indifferent times. And I think as a manager, I want to be there for me players. You know, players are human beings. They've got kids, they've got families, they've got emotions, they're going through different things. No one can control what's in the future. I think a big thing for me at Rangers, certainly in the first few months, was to show these that, yeah, okay, I've been Steven Gerrard, I've had a good career, but this is the start of a new journey as a manager and it's not just about demanding the best out of them in terms of a ball at the feet. It's to be there for them as well, for for everything. Give them support when they need it, maybe when they're not having a good time. And I think What's
0: your advice to people who find it difficult to put themselves at the front and take pressure for everyone else around them?
2: I think you get to know the individuals. Um, All individuals are different. They have different levels of talent. Uh, They bring different strengths. They're different characters. They're different people, different humans. I think over time, you have to get used to them and you have to try and get the best out of that individual. But you have to realise that one individual is completely different to the other. Some people manage themselves. I'll give you an example. Stephen Davis. He comes into work, his standards are the same every day, his diet, his body weight, his attitude, his energy. He manages himself. I have to give him very little. Then the other scale, we've got younger players who are new, they're brand new, they're still finding themselves, they're still shaping themselves as a player, as a human. He needs more of my time, he needs more 1v1 chats, he needs more guidance, more help, more support. It's getting to know what does that individual need and trying to support them in the best way you can.
1: Can I ask you then about some of the examples you talk about, some of these younger people, and just switch it a little bit. Given the sort of rich career and the experiences you've had, what do you teach your children from that? What's the most important lessons that you take from that career and pass on to your kids? Basically,
2: what the one-liners that I got when I was at their age, I've got obviously three girls and a little boy at the moment who's only three, but... With the girls, it's very much be honest and be respectful. Two very important things for me. But you normally get out of life what you put in. So whatever you decide to be, there's no pressure on my kids. You know, they don't have to be footballers. They don't have to love football. It's them finding out what they want to do, what they want to be, and me giving them the support and stuff. But basically letting them know that they'll normally get out of life what they put in. You know, if you make sacrifice, if you work hard, if you're good to people, Normally, things work out. Do you let
0: them fail at things? Because one of the issues with modern parenting is we make sure our kids are great at everything all the time, and not learning to fail is a really dangerous
2: lesson, because... From my experience, I think sometimes failure helps you to become better. Yeah, and I'm saying a lot of people don't let their kids fail. Do you allow yours to fail and to struggle at things, to learn how the world really is? It's not an easy one as a parent. I don't want them to fail, Yeah, Um, but... Depending on what the failure was and blah, 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 and how they felt about it, I think it'd depend on how I reacted to it. But if I had a chat to them about it, sometimes getting stuff wrong and making mistakes and I'm failing and something could help you in, in, in the big picture and in the long run.
0: What's your approach to
2: failure? Analyze, reflect, work out how, why, how and why, and um, go again to make it better.
0: But it's okay though, isn't it? I mean, failure is okay because that's where you find your Not limits. at the time, it's not.
2: It's horrible, <laughs> let me tell you. It's horrible, but um, it's happened. It's about yeah. dealing with it. Yeah. Analyzing, reflecting and finding the answers and deciding whether you want to go and do it again. But I'm, I'm up for um, a challenge. I'm not scared of failure, um, even though I know that it stays with me mm. for a long time. I'm someone who, who is driven and, and wants to challenge myself I again. wonder,
0: you know, whether that moment against Chelsea, if that hadn't happened then you'd won the Premier League that season, I wonder whether you would be a manager now.
2: So do I. I don't think you would necessarily. That's your opinion. But what do you think? Because you would have won it's everything, debate, done everything. But I think missing that buzz of winning and competing and that routine, that daily routine of wanting to win. I'm not sure... I can, I could have went from the age of 36, 37 to the rest of my life without some kind of drive to compete yeah. and win. So
1: can I ask you then, like, given how that moment from 2014 still lives with you that you've referenced, how did you feel watching Liverpool win it this year? Was there a part of you that was envious,
2: jealous? No, not one, one bit. Honestly? Not one beer. So how did you process it then? I felt like part of me healed more than, than any of them feelings. because just because I know not only did it hurt me it hurt a lot of people who had followed this club for many many years and they work on a daily basis. Liverpool fans commit themselves to that club and they, they work every day they love the club it's in the heart uh, I've, I've lived there for 20 years I, I'm, I'm, I'm more um, I knew what that meant that premiership to an awful lot of people my own family to me, I, 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 mean the way the club were with me during that time, which is which will remain private. During that run in to win the Premier League, it was special how that club was with me.
0: Do you think that's because they were aware of
2: how big it, was what it, for it meant you? to me, yeah. and what I'd probably been through? And they listen to interviews, yeah. and you've still got the relationships with all them people and stuff. I think a lot of people were probably wondering whether I was jealous, but nah. So
1: can I ask you a question about that, about that game specifically, because I, I I want to almost tackle a bit of a myth, and I don't know if it's true or not, that there was a story that one of the techniques that Brendan Rodgers was using at the time was reading out letters from loved ones before a game yeah, to let true. you know how, how important it was. And before that game, it was letters from your family that yeah. it's, and, and whether that tipped you over the edge emotionally that day, that it was almost, you were trying too hard, you were too eager.
2: Are you talking about the City game or the actual Chelsea game? All I, in that I, running, but I, I think I, it's a Chelsea game. I can't game. remember the exact game my family thing was read out, but it was certainly towards the latter stages. I,
1: but did that help or did that tip you over the edge emotionally?
2: I used to like it. I liked that technique because I think he really pulled on your heartstrings before games and he'd done it probably for the majority of them games that season yeah. he picked a different player and Clever I think it was very clever and um, I liked the way he done it in, in secret to people that yeah. I think it was brilliant and there's different ways and techniques how to get the best out of people I'm not sure whether mine was on that day I couldn't really answer that question to you to be honest but talking about did I get too emotional in that running 100% because I look at the reaction after the City game and blah 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 and for sure yeah because it meant Because I'll so tell much. you
1: where that came to me was, and, and, and I'll tell you another one that I was debating whether to raise this with you, but an occasion that really surprised me once observing you in mm. your career around when you speak about being on the edge was, you know that last game against Manchester United? Mm. I'll confess, I was in the away end mm. that day and what had struck me was watching you warming up as a substitute mm. that afternoon. And I was really surprised when I saw you take the bait from the United fans mm. And, and respond to the golden that you were getting. Mm. And I was surprised at the lack of emotional control that mm. it seemed to have on you, that, it seemed, that you seemed to buy. Uh. Was there also a,
0: a bit of fear around at that time for you with the fact that your Liverpool career was coming to an end and you were having to face up to that? Or was fear never an emotion around that?
2: I'm not sure fear is the right word. There was definitely a, um, an awareness that I wasn't the player I was probably... Mm. Three four years earlier, obviously I'd changed position and I was adapting uh, as as a midfielder, if you like, and becoming a little bit more reserved and a deep lying midfielder. Whatever people have different terms for it, quarterback, playmaker, whatever. Um, I knew I wasn't the marauding, and full of energy, yeah. jump round and go and press and get in people's face. I knew I were not that type of player, and I knew I was aware of my age and stuff, but I still believed I could have contributed. In, in a strong way to that team and that club. And I think if them situations, Madrid away, Man United at home, I think if if things were different or went different for me, I believe I would have stayed for another year. Really? Mm. Why do you think that? I just do. I, I think them experiences and them disappointments maybe push you towards thinking, you know, maybe it is time to move on and, and, and do something different. Whereas if you start in them games and you still feel like you're an important player and you're a starter and stuff, maybe you think, well, maybe it's not time, maybe you stay. But, you know, that's it's all in the past, you know.
0: It's so interesting though, isn't it? Because all of this, again, whether it's the emotional control thing in the Man United mm. game or that incredible moment after the City game when you actually cried on the pitch and, yeah. and you, you know, that was a big moment as well. Or whether it's that dawning realisation that, you know, your career with Liverpool is slowly coming to an end. All of this, again, filters towards experiences that you will be dealing with on a season-by-season basis as a 100%, manager. 100%, yeah. I'm, I've heard you say that you you feel like you were born for playing. Do you ever feel like you will get to that place and have a similar relationship to management that you had to being a football player? I hope so. Are you on that journey now?
2: Is yeah. Is it feeling more
0: I'm, and more like you?
2: Yeah, I, as, as a player, I felt like I got to a place where I felt like I could... Be really, really good and strong, and I can compete against anyone. There there was a stage in a period of my career where I I did feel like no one bothered me in terms of the challenge or who I was up against. You felt invincible? Not not invincible. I didn't fear anyone. Yeah. I didn't fear anyone. I felt like I was strong. Every part of my game was strong. I was in a good place, and I could really go toe-to-toe with anyone. I did feel like that. Whether I did or not is a different debate. I hope one day I can get to a stage as a manager where I feel complete, where I feel I can compete against the the, the best managers in the world, but it's different because you need a lot of things to fall into place. You need to be around the best players. You need to be at a certain club. Uh, It is a completely different role. Um, But in terms of that feeling where you can compete against anyone, I'd love to get to that position as a manager. Um obviously on a journey to try and get somewhere close to that.
1: And when do you feel you left behind the tag of being a former footballer and started to become
2: I a I don't think coach? you ever lose that tag because that's what I am. That's what I'm proud to be, and an, an ex-player. I'm proud of the career I had. People always want to talk to me about my career. So I don't think you ever leave that tag. But I think for me, the way I go about my business now, I, I very rarely think about, Steven Gerrard the player unless I'm trying to tap into an experience. I try and live my life now as trying to be the best manager I can be.
0: And you gave so much. So in terms much. of me
2: personally, I've left it. But Others for left. other people, Yeah, I don't think you ever lose that tag of being the ex-player because people always bring it up. You chat you to remember seeing you there, remember that game and you can't get away from it.
0: You gave so much to being a player. I mean, it dominated your life for 20 years. Will you allow yourself to be that obsessive about management? Will you allow it to dominate your life in the same way?
2: No, but I think there will be times when it does. Uh, and, and in the, what, two and a half years, I've been a, a full-time manager. And, you know, as a coach preparing to be that uh, at the academy and stuff, it's different. You know, you, you, you're you working with kids, the developments and that the points are not important. You're trying to grow and get pitch experience. But when you go into the real game, and you're representing ranges, and you know what it means to certain people there are times when it dominates your life and you can't control that That, that's what it is um but there will be a stage in my life where i have to give it up for the sake of my family and for myself to cut it and live life with a bit of peace i think but i wonder if you can do that i hope so i hope so I think there's got to be a stage of your life where you have calm and, and peace. and um, But at the moment, I don't feel ready for that. I do still feel full of energy. I do think I can help players. Um, I do see opportunities to have more highs and buzzes and adrenaline rushes. You know, I do see things that I want to go and achieve. So I'm not ready for that now. But for Alex and the kids, at some stage, I'm going to have to give myself to them 100%. I think when that'll be, who knows. Have they ever asked for that? Alex would would take it tomorrow. I bet. She'd take it tomorrow. Well, you have tomorrow. to remember
0: how much the family come with you on that mm. emotional journey. You know, we've yeah. spoken a lot about 2014. She would have been the one picking you up after that, I imagine.
2: 100% yeah. She's the one who brings me down when I'm coming and think I'm fantastic. If I've scored a goal or we've won a game, she pipes me down. And when you're on the floor and you're staring at the wall, she's the one who helps pick you up she's going through the journey as well so at some point and the kids the kids see it you know you do your best to keep it away from you try and not bring it home but any manager or any player that says see I don't take it home I leave it in the car they're telling you lies
0: Brilliant Um, we're going to finish with our quick fire questions as we always do Um, the first one is the three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you
2: have to buy into Honesty respectful and commit everything the law, all in for me
1: what advice would you give a teenage Stephen coming from Highton
2: um a teenage Stephen Gerrard from mine. go for it go for it it's worth it even though the even though the lows are tough go for it because it's an incredible ride and uh, the, the highs are difficult to describe. Go for it, go and enjoy it.
0: How important I'll go is... through it with you. <laughs> you, you I'll do you. it again. <laughs> yeah. How important is legacy to you?
2: It's not. It's not. I think legacy is for other people. They, they they decide how they want to remember you and whether people like you, whether people think you you were as good as him or you should have done that, you should have done that. It's for other people to decide. For me it's just trying to maximize the most I can from my profession and from my life, I want to maximise and have the best experiences I can have. Do I want to leave a legacy behind? Well, yeah, if I had the choice, but other people have an opinion on your legacy. I don't really think about it.
1: So following on from that then, one of Bill Shankly's, uh, the words under his statue are that he made the people happy. Are you happy?
2: Yeah, I'm happy. Um I could be happier. If what would I could would I happy? change a few things, I'd change them.
0: You can't let it go? It's no, 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 not
2: just, not just you'll, you'll keep alluding to that moment because I've mentioned it, I'm talking about, I'd love to be sitting here with more trophies, of course I would. But, you know, you get out of it what you get out of it. Um, in terms of Bill Shankley, I want the people to be proud and to see that I was one of them and I committed and I was all in and I'd done my best uh, from a football point of view. In terms of as a, as a person, I just the only people that really matter to me are the people that want to matter, they are close to me. Other people's opinions, and I'm, I'm not re- don't really think about that too much because I can't control what people think about me.
0: What would you say is your one golden rule to living a high performance life?
2: Sacrifice. Sacrifice is massive. I think there's two. There's the sacrifice, and as I say, that word them them two words being all in. I don't think you can get to where you want to get to if you're 80, 90% on it. I think you've got a goal for it.
0: Listen, thanks so much for sitting and chatting to us for the for the past hour and a bit. I think... Um, was that an hour, was it? Yeah, it was an hour. That was fun. You, you know what? I, I just love the fact that you've had an amazing career, yet those few little moments, and they are little when you compare them to the amazing things that you did achieve, are still igniting that fire every single day. And I think that... um. I think when we see you go on to have a successful management career and when you sit here and have a conversation like this, I have absolutely
2: no doubt that you will go on and be a successful manager. I hope so. But I think if we do this again in 10 years, it wouldn't surprise me if I'm talking about a couple of things I've missed out on or gone close to. Maybe that's your superpower though. Maybe that's what you've got that is is different to everyone else. When I analyze my career properly and stuff and, and the highs and lows, I always felt like a high came on the back of something that was a low. Don't know whether it gave me extra determination or something. I think sometimes you could never say this to people, but sometimes a low or a bad time or a disappointment can be the catalyst and the trigger to something really, really amazing and special. Um, and if anyone came to me to chat about that, or was in a bad place, or missed out on something, or blah blah blah, I'd like to be in a position to say, "Well, look, let that, that happen to me, and you got a choice now." you know, what's next?
0: I think at the end of the day, you're going to reflect on those moments and be grateful for them rather than sad about them. I hope so. Damien. Jake. That was an amazing insight, I think, into how Stephen is reflecting on a remarkable career as a Liverpool player, but using that On a daily basis to try and take Glasgow Rangers where he wants them to be. That was a real privilege to have that conversation.
1: Yeah, it felt an absolute treat. I was reminded of um, there's a lovely speech by uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, that talks about the man in the arena, and that was the they were the words that kept coming to mind as I listened to Stephen. You know, the man that dares to that dares greatly, but then occasionally fails and and comes up short
0: with those cold and timid souls that know neither victory nor defeat.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's said the exact word. And that's what I was thinking about, Stephen, that although he spoke about those crushing disappointments and was, and that seemed to drive him in many ways, the fact is this is a guy living a high-performance life and sometimes that's gone wrong, but it's about putting yourself out there again. And I found it really quite inspiring.
0: And do you look at the mindset he has about those moments in his life that went badly, that he still holds so tightly onto and uses them to inspire him. Do you think that's healthy for him? Because I think it's probably healthy for his career. I think he will be a better manager for carrying that inspiration with him.
1: Yeah, very much. I think there was an initial thought when he responded that I thought it's probably not healthy for him as an individual to, to allow those moments to define him because there's so many more positive elements Mm. that, that um, characteristics that should define him from the outside. But I think the, the telling bit was at the end where he said that he, he noticed a pattern that whenever he had a disappointment, he, follow, he followed it up with a high. And I think, for, so from a professional point of view, he's driving that. So he wants to go and win the premiership in Scotland. And eventually, I've no doubt, he wants to come back down to England and achieve that same success.
0: Well, I've, I've heard and seen lots of interviews with him over the years. And you know that went places that none of those have gone. It was a, it was a real pleasure and credit to him for opening up.
1: Yeah, I felt like the term you used at the start, it felt a real privilege here that he trusted us to come and open up and and to share these insights that hopefully people listening can take away and apply in their own lives, whatever the the endeavours that they're engaged in.
0: Well, there you go. Um, That was Stephen Gerrard talking really openly, really candidly, very honestly here on the High Performance Podcast. It's If it's the first time you've ever listened to the pod, that's the kind of thing that you can expect. Let me just remind you that, of course, you can subscribe for free. We're also on YouTube. You can follow Damien at Liquid Thinker on Instagram. I'm at Jake Humphrey and the pod as well at High Performance on Instagram. We'd love you to come along and get loads of extra content there. Uh, Damien, a really, really enjoyable episode. You know, it's been a couple of weeks since we recorded that and I've been thinking about it a lot.
1: Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really loved his honesty and uh, I think I was quite moved by him. I know I mentioned that, that speech from Theodore Roosevelt, the man in the arena, but I really love that line about he dared greatly. You know, sometimes it didn't come off, but many times it did. And I just think the competitive courage that he showed was uh, was really was really humbling to, uh, to listen to.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, whether you love football or not, whether you love Liverpool or Rangers or you don't, um, you can't not realise that that is a man who is driven to go on and achieve plenty in his career. I mean, we even spoke, didn't we, about whether he has to drop down the football ladder eventually in his career to go back up again. This isn't just a short-term thing for him. This is now his life, isn't it, being a manager?
1: Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day uh, in relation to some of our other guests, though, that they're not doing it for money, they're not doing it for fame, they're not doing it for prestige, they're just doing it because they love it, and I think there's something really powerful about that realisation that that it's about finding something that you love and that just keeps you going. It fuels the passion and the resilience to keep going through difficult times as well. Well, mate, look at all the famous people who,
0: over their lifetimes, they didn't actually experience fame. They didn't make their money. So those people where we say, oh, they died penniless, they died poor, they were only celebrated after their death, those great people, those great leaders, those inspirers – they didn't get any of the plaudits when they were alive. So they can't have done it for the money. They can't have done it for the feedback. And I think sometimes these days we are obsessed with external validation. We're we're obsessed with feedback on social media, you know, rather than just say, well, I don't care what people think, whether people like it or not. This is my thing and I'm going to follow that path.
1: Yeah. There's a great quote that says, you know, like, um, if you want to perform in front of thousands, you've got to learn how to do it in the shadows. And uh I think that's it. I think where the real love of this comes from is just doing it because you love it, not because you're looking for the pat on the back. There's something really powerful about that message for anybody listening to this, that this isn't about the wealth, the fame, the prestige that comes from it. It's just about finding something that you love and then mastering it.
0: Brilliant. Um, listen, uh, for any of you listening to this, we really, 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 really appreciate it if you're able to hop onto wherever you get your podcasts and rate us and review us. It makes a huge difference. It allows us to access so many more people. Um, we've had a really nice review actually on um, on Apple Podcasts from Radiohead1234567, which is a great username. He says, what a refreshing podcast to tune into asking focused and penetrating questions i'm a construction project manager and also a father of three young girls aged 12 10 and 7 Ooh, good luck and i found so many golden nuggets to apply uh, fault versus responsibility striving to complete ownership and accountability clear goals and then he says the world has never been more blame and mediocrity fostering than now this podcast cuts through the sea of cotton wool i like that
1: brilliant yeah I think it really resonates. I think what's really interesting um, from that from that kind of feedback is that this has been a theme that's gone right from Series 1, Jake. Um, I, the, I often tell people the most um, downloaded particular clip was from Series 1's interview with Robin Van Persie, where he recounted the conversation he'd had with Shaquille, his 14-year-old son. And the reason I think it's been downloaded over 5 million times is the fact that it's a conversation that all of us are having both with ourselves, with other people and with our children about when he said about, you can either choose to be a loser by blaming other people, or you can choose to be a winner by being accountable and looking at yourself in the mirror. And I think that comment there is testimony that that message is, uh, is is consistent across both the series we've done so far. And I think, um,
0: Sometimes it's not an easy conversation, is it, for people to hear because we're kind of challenging that a little bit. It's it's a hell of a lot easier in this world to blame external factors, to look for someone else to kind of say, well, this happened or that happened and not to take it on your shoulders. And I think if someone was to say to me, now you're at Series 3, what's the single most important message to have come out of the the whole series, the, the two series of high performance that we've done? It is that the people that we speak to, take responsibility regardless of whose fault it is. It's an absolute irrelevance to them and I often talk about 100% responsibility which for me kind of sums it up because it's responsibility for literally everything. Things you can control and things that you have absolutely no control about.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think like that game, Guess Who? I think if you were to share uh, some of the experiences that some of our guests have had and just give the examples of From Aunt Middleton, you know, being sent to prison and speaking about the death of his father at a very young age, to Michelle Moan talking about her father being paralyzed, uh, to, you know, Rio Ferdinand talking about uh, that drugs test that he was banned for. I think there's not one of our guests that haven't had a moment of trauma or a setback or a difficulty that would have been easy to deflect and point the finger at somebody else. And yet, you're right. That message of they all held their hands up, accepted it, and then looked to move on from it was a, is a really powerful message about responsibility. Definitely.
0: Well, look, Damien, thank you very much. Um, that's episode one of the new series. Down. Uh, just a quick reminder: if you're uh, if you're new to this, go back, listen to the previous couple of. Uh, couple of series there's loads of fascinating takeaways on there um not least johnny wilkinson um, who's certainly got a lot of people talking at the end of series two damien thanks so much mate no thanks jake good
1: to see you again uh, a quick reminder
0: you can follow damien on instagram he's at liquid thinker I'm at Jay Humphrey at High Performance is the pod. We've also had um, millions of people getting involved in our YouTube channel, which you can find. Just go to YouTube and look for High Performance. I want to say a big thanks to Tom Griffin at Rethink Audio for his hard work on this episode. Just remember, every single Monday, if you subscribe right now, the High Performance podcast will drop into your inbox, full of inspiration, full of guidance, full of wisdom every single Monday. But for now, for the next seven days, please take responsibility, take control, have a great week, and we'll see you next Monday. You can also find the podcast on YouTube as well. Just head to YouTube and search for High Performance Podcast. We've had millions of people engaging with the pod uh, right there, watching our videos, the stuff that you won't hear anywhere else and you won't see anywhere else. So feel free to get involved on our YouTube channel. Bye-bye.